Good morning, everyone. You're very welcome to today's discussion, the third in our series in um, our, the RDS Vision 2030 series. And it's wonderful and it's appropriate that we are in a very scholarly setting, the RDS Library. And uh, once again, as Gillian says, we have a first-rate panel to discuss our theme today, Powering the Green Economy, Ireland's Potential to be a Renewable Energy Leader. Um, I'll stay with you, uh, if I may, Paul, because we know what the targets are. There's, a, there's a, you know, an Irish government, an Irish state plan uh, for clean energy. We want to move to net zero by 2050. But we keep on hearing we're a long way off. So just bring us up to date. What's your read on the current situation? Yeah, look, <coughs> we hear a lot about targets and numbers, but there's some fundamental brass tacks. And there's a fundamental story, really, about where we are in Ireland. We think of ourselves as being very green and clean, and we kind of position ourselves as being a kind of a leader in green energy. But unfortunately, we are one of the most fossil fuel dependent countries in Europe. Um, we're spending about one million euros every hour, Sean, importing oil and gas into this country. And like, I find it frustrating sometimes when you think about the potential that we have in Ireland. You, know, you go outside here this morning, you'll see sunshine, you'll see the oceans, you'll see the wind. The potential that we have in Ireland to produce our own energy, to save energy. We're a smart people, smart economy. So we're way off. And we're still one million euros every single hour. Ireland is actually more fossil fuel dependent than China. Um, and that's really unusual, isn't it? Now, China have a different mix of fuels, but we are actually, our reliance on fossil fuels is something that's incredible. So, uh, and then when we think of our climate target, Sean, uh, again, we, we like to tell the world that we're green and clean, but unfortunately, we're not. When we think about our greenhouse gases, which is the pollution that goes into the atmosphere and causes all these heat trapping, uh, uh, heat trapping events, we're one of the most polluting on a per-person basis. You know, we're a small country, so at a global level, people say, oh, Ireland's small, it doesn't matter. That's really a, a coincidence of geography, okay? Mm -hmm. But if we look at the consequences of all our actions, we are the second highest polluters of greenhouse gases on a per-person basis that in Europe. Paul Saunders doesn't seem to sit too well with claims we hear from Airgrid, for instance, that 40% of our generation is now from renewables. So explain the, the apparent contradictions there. Um, well, I think you know we, we have, do have a few sectors in the economy that are relatively high emitting uh, relative to the GDP, like food and agriculture, for example. And, mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I think the I think the forty percent um, number is is correct on an ongoing basis. What we need to get to is sort of seventy, eighty plus percent. So mm -hmm. you can argue that forty percent isn't bad. And and actually, if you consider the challenges of getting renewable generation onto the Irish grid, it, it's pretty good, right? Ten years ago, we were really worried about this. We didn't know was the grid going to survive this amount of intermittent generation. Um, and it's proven to be pretty resilient, but, but we need to go an awful lot further. So I think, uh, um, you know, to Paul's point, that, you know, we've, we, we may be, you know, at 40%, but we need to double that. And, you know, certainly from, from an ISAF perspective, we're thinking very hard around what the investment opportunities and the investment needs of Ireland Inc. are to deliver that. And, and so, you know, as you allude to in your question, grid is certainly part of this. There's the offshore generation piece. There's a storage element to it. You know, it's a, it's a multifaceted problem with lots of sort of interconnectivity, and that's, <coughs> that's the challenge we're trying to solve for. 
Val, when I was a cub reporter on the Connacht Tribune in Galway 39 years ago, we were hearing <coughs> academics in UCG, as it then was now, University of Galway, talk about the possibilities with wave power, wind power. Um, and yes, things have happened, but it seems that not enough has been happening and there are all sorts of blockages, not least in the planning sector, uh, to making use of the kind of natural resources that are there for us. Yeah, I think, you know, we've long been aware of the amazing marine resource that we have. The Marine Institute has done such fantastic work in relation to pushing out this idea about the real map of Ireland, the fact that our maritime area is mm -hmm. up to 10 times the size of our landmass, and within that, we have an incredible wave resource for potential wave energy. And of course, it's not called the Wild Atlantic Wave for nothing. We have one of the best um, wind resources in the world and yet as you say we haven't tapped into that and the question is why well with regards to wave technology it's because the technology hasn't come on stream yet to the point where it's ready for commercial deployment and centers like the Marai Center in, in Cork are very much focused on trying to support companies to go through those technology readiness levels but with offshore wind, we've over 20 years um, of experience of, of offshore wind deployed, you know, at large scales all around Europe and in other parts of the world. So why haven't we done this here? Um, we were one of the first countries in the world to develop an offshore wind farm, which was Artlow. Um, it's still there, and that's it. We shifted gear, Sean, and we looked at onshore wind, and we've made progress in terms of integrating renewables from onshore onto the grid, but we haven't progressed with offshore until now. Now we have a target. We had the first target for offshore wind in the Climate Action Plan 2019. So we're starting to pivot towards that and we have targets for 2030 and beyond. But fundamentally, we have the technology. There's a wall of capital looking for investment. Fundamentally, it's about putting in place a fit-for-purpose regulatory system. And we started from a very, very low base where we didn't have a sound foundation for marine planning and development in this, in this country. So even though for decades we've been saying it's going to come, when the time came, we found that we weren't ready. Yeah, and just if a little bit more on that one, Paul, Paul Dean. Um, what are the blockages that are there that you see being addressed and how quickly can they be addressed and can it be done faster or should it be? Yeah, so the blockages, Sean, are primarily non-technical, you know, as, as Val says. Back to planning. Back to planning, yeah. So, and it, look, there, there's legacy issues there. If you look at the countries that are doing really well in offshore wind at the moment, like Scotland, uh, Norway, for example, they had a very thriving oil and gas industry back in the, from the 50s to the 60s. So they actually had a literacy and they had a resource already enabled and put in place to deal with offshore issues for permitting, planning, licensing. So they had a level of agility that we never had. We, didn't, we don't really have uh, an active offshore offshore industry here in Ireland. So when it came to moving on these technologies, they were able to move a lot more quickly. And really what we need in Ireland, as Val said, look, we need a fit for purpose regulatory framework because it's not just about having the wind or having the waves. You must have the investment, uh, and Paul might chat to this, but you must have the, the, the investment infrastructure. And it has to be agile, Sean, you know, we have, we're in the middle of a climate emergency. We're in the middle of an energy crisis. We have a biodiversity crisis. We have a cost of living crisis. In a crisis, you must display agility, like we did during COVID. Mm -hmm. you know, we did really well in COVID, didn't we? You know, we? We made decisions quickly. There were good decisions. And the same thing needs to happen, I think, with energy. And in fairness to government, uh, I think it was last April, they established uh, an offshore wind delivery task force. Now, any of you know what they're up to or what they've been doing since? I have a 
a bit of an insight. Um, so there have been a, a number of meetings um, that kicked off in earnest um, this summer. And it's very important because um, when it comes to climate and offshore and all of these different moving pieces, of course, you have different responsibilities in different departments and agencies. And that can be very frustrating in terms of trying to get the job done. So that the task force is very much focused on coordination. In relation to the offshore task force, they're looking at some very specific issues, such as supply chain, for example. But what I feel is lacking in that, John, is reaching out and tapping into um, the universities and the industry knowledge. If we're going to crack this nut, it's going to take everyone. We're in a crisis, as Paul said. And if we have government coordinating within government, that's good. But actually, it needs to be all hands on deck and government needs to be more open to taking the knowledge and the insights from industry and from universities into those types of processes and I'd like to see it to evolve in that way. And Paul Saunders, under the NAMA, sorry, the NTA, I beg your pardon, the NTMA, ISAF uh, umbrella, you are at the, the interface <laughs> yeah. of government and industry, so what's your perspective on uh, how things are progressing and how things are being unpicked, the problems that's that right. are being so unpicked? We indeed, and that's I think one of the strengths of ISAF is we do sit at this sort of boundary between public and private. Mm -hmm. Um, we always invest alongside private capital, and although we're, we invest public funds, we behave like a private equity or private debt fund. And so we're, you know, part of our mandate is really to catalyze this kind of activity in the Irish market. So to, we use the phrase crowding in capital. So for to date, every euro that ISO has invested, there's been an extra 1.7 invested by other third-party investors. So. I think the, the provision of capital piece is something that we think a lot about and is very important. And the crowding in and having a sort of a, a sovereign investment fund that's prepared to come into some of these really big, often very high risk investments, particularly at the early stage, as a, a co-investment partner for, for other very large institutional investors on a global basis, I think that's, uh, that's something that we, we are very focused on. And the other thing I'd like to say is that we, we spend an awful lot of time thinking about the other side of our mandate, which is the economic impact piece. So mm -hmm. if we can get to a point, you know, um, a number of years hence, where we have fully decarbonized mm -hmm. the Irish electricity grid, and we have 30, 40, 50 gigawatts, hopefully, of offshore wind, a substantial portion of which I suspect will be floating, how do you, how do you really secure the economic dividend of all of that for the Irish state? And so we're thinking about how we can invest not just in the, the sort of the rotating infrastructure offshore, but also in the supply chains, the boats that are needed to support these developments, the, um, <coughs> the port infrastructure, right, needs. So Wind Energy Ireland recently produced, I think, what I'd consider to be an excellent report on the port infrastructure around Ireland and how that needs to be developed. So there's this whole industry we need to build, and as Paul rightly points out, other countries have a bit of a head start on Ireland in that respect, notwithstanding the fact that we did Arclo. 20 odd years ago. Um, but you know that piece of, of thinking about the whole value chain, what do we need to really do this at scale and secure those benefits for Ireland rather than having all of this stuff built out of Cherbourg? You know? Well, can I just pick up on that thread in relation to other countries? And I think you mentioned, Paul, Norway and, and Scotland earlier. Just li let's look at Scotland for, for one second in relation to what we're up against. You talked about the fact that they have mature supply chain because of oil and gas in the North Sea. But Scotland, for example, doesn't have um, a very extensive grid. Um, and so instead of putting grid at the centre of the, the planning and policy framework, in the last leasing round, it was called Scotland. 
um, they basically allowed industry to innovate and come to the table with solutions with regards to alternative route to market. And as a result of that, the Scotwind leasing round leased 15 gigawatts of floating offshore wind at a time when the government here was saying, we're not convinced that floating is real. Um, and, you know, we really need to sort the grid piece first. So I, I think that what we need to do is, is really look at what's happening elsewhere and learn from that. And as a company and, and, and as managing director of two joint venture companies between Simply Blue Group and Shell, up until now. The aforementioned. The aforementioned. Um, you know, we unfortunately lost our JV partner um, a few weeks ago. Shell have decided to, to leave the Irish market. Um, following a global portfolio review, and that's a consequence of other jurisdictions being much more attractive of places to do business. And that should be a really serious wake-up call, but unfortunately it just doesn't seem to have the kind of knock-on impact one would expect that that type of news in the marketplace should have. You, you were a leader, uh, Val, in an organisation or an umbrella group called Flosh, which has rather onomatopoeic kind of qualities to it. <laughs> Tell us about FLOSH. FLOSH is a committee of Wind Energy Ireland. It stands for Floating Offshore Wind, Supergrid and Hydrogen. And it brings together um, all of the developers and the supply chain interests um, that are really interested in making sure that Ireland is going to avail of its floating offshore wind opportunity. And I get a sense from what you were saying earlier um, that the government has misread it about the value or they don't see the value or the potential of floating offshore? I wouldn't go that far. Um, otherwise, but I might as well, otherwise I should go home because <laughs> my job wouldn't be well done. I, I do think that the, the message is landing more now, mm. Sean. Um, but there's still such uncertainty. There is nothing. We have in the programme for government, um, there's a stated ambition of 30 gigawatts of energy from floating offshore wind from the Atlantic from 2030. But other than that, there's nothing written down in pol policy. There's nothing in the climate action plan. So we need to see for industry and for all of those players in the flush setting to be able to progress with investment and so on. We need to see commitment. And we did see two gigawatts of offshore wind from green hydrogen being announced this summer, which is excellent in relation to our 2030 targets. That's showing that the tide is turning. But unfortunately, what we're not seeing is detail or the pathway to really make sure that our, our Ireland is going to surge forward in that way. I suppose there's two things I would maybe just like to add to, to Val's points, uh, Sean. Like I could talk to you for hours about the science and about the complexities and the modelling, but fundamentally it boils down to just playing to your strengths. You know, Ireland is not like Norway. We don't have oil and gas. We're not like France. We don't have a tradition of nuclear. We're not like south of Italy with, with, with loads of solar. What do we have? We have wind, we have weather. We have a fantastic ecosystem to grow energy. So you've got to play to your strengths. You've got to look at what you have, but acknowledge those strengths, but also acknowledge those weaknesses in terms of planning. And that really needs to, be, uh, needs to be addressed. The other thing, and maybe coming back to one of the points that Paul made, when I reflect on the Norways and the Scotlands and what they did, 
and uh, talking about your need for, uh, you know, I suppose maximizing the value for Ireland, Paul. Norway did a really clever thing back in the 60s and 70s. They implemented a, a local content rule, you know, that a certain amount of the procurement had to come from local suppliers. But as well as that, wrapping around that, they had skills. They acknowledged there was a skills shortage within the universities in Norway. They didn't have, it was all in the States at the time. So they invested heavily in, the, in, in Trondheim University and NTMU. They invested in the skills that they needed to the future to try and leapfrog, I suppose, to industry. Because you can have all the local content you want, but if you don't have the people there to deliver it, and we need offshore engineers, we need tradespeople, we need and, and outside of electricity. You know, if you think about solar panels, if you think about heat pumps and farming, you know, we need carpenters, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need more women and men getting mm -hmm. into these trades, because fundamentally, there's a financial element, but a lot of this would be delivered by hands. You know, yes, we need cranes and ports, but we also need people. So we need to start thinking now about getting those people in place. Um, do, do we need a center of excellence perhaps along the West Coast, I mean, whether it would be Foynes, Galway, or wherever. I mean, what, what's your view of that, Paul? Sounds like a good idea, <laughs> yeah. I, I hadn't given much thought to it. I think, I think what we... Um, that should probably flow from a view of what the sort of the country's industrial policy is going to look like mm -hmm. going forward. So what, what do we want this all to add up to at some point mm -hmm. in the future? And this is, I know the, the title of this series is a vision series. So what's sort of the vision for Ireland's industrial economy going forward? And then you can start to put these sort of building blocks in place. So you can envisage you know, a huge amount of offshore wind. You can envisage a hydrogen economy, some very significant storage assets. We have to do all kinds of things in other parts of the economy, right? So energy efficiency is a really quick win we can go after. And I think speed of delivery here is absolutely key. And if, if we listen to anything coming out of COP, it's that we're just not moving fast enough. And so I think you know, building that sort of holistic picture of, of where we're trying to get to with all of this. And of course, you need to then distill mm -hmm. that down to the building blocks. But So I think the center of excellence absolutely sounds like a great idea, but it, it should be in the context of what's it going to deliver to the big picture. You in ISAF have a, a pot of money, I think it's about one billion that you want to spend in this general area. <coughs> Invest, yeah. Uh, sorry, <laughs> an important <laughs> and a critical difference. Uh, and yeah. you, you obviously have to take a hard-nosed approach. So yep. I'm just wondering about the kind of projects that are proposals that may be on your desk at the moment. I mean, are you going to be able to spend <coughs> that? Um, <coughs> yeah, undoubtedly, uh, and, and probably a lot more. But in fact, you know, you could consider most of the investments we see nowadays have some sort of climate element to them because the whole economy is, is having to transition. If you focus purely on the, on the climate piece, we sort of view this in the context of two time periods. So the first is 2030, <coughs> and that's all about delivery. So you look at the Climate Action Plan and the different verticals, so energy, transport, built environment, um, uh, food and agriculture, and you say, okay, what sustainable infrastructure do we need to deliver on that plan? And so we're seeing lots of opportunities in and around all of that across all the different verticals. And then there's an enabling technology piece to maximize the efficiency of those assets. So we're seeing, you know, from, from offshore wind through to forestry, through to clean tech, we're seeing all kinds of um, opportunities. And then the second pillar is post-2030. So even if we get to 2030, you know, and if and when we deliver on our 2030 targets, we're still only halfway there. <coughs> And there's a massive amount of decarbonisation to do then. You could argue the harder half comes post-2030, because that's when you start getting into these really hard to decarbonise sectors. And so we have a, a separate sort of pillar of activity that says, well, what are the new, new technologies, new business models, sort of creating a portfolio of options almost for the economy in future to deliver sort of towards the back end of this decade and then beyond that. And that, 
whilst the first pillar looks like um, sort of infrastructure investing and getting stuff in the ground quickly to remove the carbon, the second pillar looks a lot more venture-like. It's slightly higher risk. It's a bit more techy. And I think the blend of those two is really important if we're going to execute the whole journey to net zero. And I think that's something that we're in a fortunate position to be able to take a very long-term view and invest behind that. So. And do you have a timescale for the disbursement by way of investment of this billion? Is it by 2026 or <coughs> what's, the, what's the, the, the timeline? Yeah, so, so um, just to put it in context, we have about half a billion of climate-related investments to date uh, mm -hmm. across a broad range, but largely concentrated in the energy sector, primarily wind and solar. Um, since we made the announcement of our target of a billion last September, we've invested, we've committed 285 million to climate-related investments. I think when you start thinking about the really chunky infrastructure pieces, they are likely to come towards the back end of that five-year mm -hmm. period, so years three to five, because those kind of projects take a bit more time to mm -hmm. take shape and get up and running. So we're engaged in the very early stage development activity with a few sort of large infrastructure projects. But the big capital flows when the things get built will happen in a few years' time. So I think so the billion, we've, we've made good progress already, and I, I would expect sort of a, a ramping up towards the end of that period. Paul Dean, Mary Robinson on Morning Ireland yesterday was saying there was a danger, and it's a kind of a paradoxical situation, that the war on Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, has, if you like, run the risk of distracting European leaders from pushing ahead with the targets that they have uh, to, to reduce dependency on fossil fuels. Um, they're totally fixated now on security of supply, whereas in actual fact, it should add urgency to the idea of moving away from that dependency. Yeah, I wouldn't share that view, uh, Sean, to be honest, you know, because at, at, at the crisis that we're seeing at the moment is at its core a fossil fuel crisis, okay, caused by the war. And if you're in the middle of a fossil fuel crisis, and if you are one of the most fossil fuel dependent countries in Europe, having more fossil fuels doesn't address that crisis. So I think really moving away from fossil fuels and accelerating away from fossil fuels is by far the, gr the, the, the best thing that we can do to reduce that reliance. And w one of the things I do as a scientist, and this sounds kind of nerdy, but uh, even coming in here this morning, I love walking past petrol pumps and diesel pumps. Uh, stay with me now, Sean. <laughs> and, you, you, and if you look at the price in petrol pumps, it's always reflecting some geopolitical event that's happening in the world. And that's what I, I enjoy doing. This morning, diesel is two euros a litre, reflecting what OPEC Plus are doing, reflecting the, the, the trade strikes in, in refineries in France. And as an Irish citizen and as Irish people, we are always going to be hostages to events that are happening in other countries. Okay? We have, and that's because with that reliance, we have outsourced our energy production, we've outsourced our independence. And when, just when Paul was talking about the future and we talk about what Ireland might look like, I imagine an Ireland where we have less volatility in, in prices because we, uh, prices might be a little bit higher, that's okay, but the volatility will be, will be massively reduced. So you'll, you'll have businesses who will be able to make long-term investments on electricity or energy because they know that it's coming from renewables, that the weather, okay, it's a bit, it's intermittent, it's variable, but it's certainly nowhere near the volatility and unpredictability of the, of the political events that we're seeing in Ireland. The prices that we're paying for energy today are decided by decisions in Riyadh, in Moscow, and in Washington. Uh, with all greatest respect to Minister Ryan and the government here, they have so little control of energy prices in Ireland because we produce so little of it in Ireland. So the economic arguments, the environmental arguments, the social arguments for moving away from fossil fuels are incredibly compelling for us here in Ireland. So maybe from each of you, you might give us an idea of maybe three 
or maybe two or four things that need to happen, just practical steps that need to be taken to give us a better chance of hitting those targets in 2030, 2050. Um, Val, I, I'll, I'll come to you first on that. Thanks, Sean. Um, I'm just to, to, to get to that um, answer, I just want to, for those that aren't familiar, we've been talking about floating offshore wind mm -hmm. and, and what does that mean? And, and this is about Vision 300. So just to take one second on that and then sure, to come yeah, to that yeah. point, because floating offshore wind is different from traditional fixed bottom mm -hmm. because it is secured to the seabed by a system of moorings and anchors, essentially. It's not a single foundation piled deep into the seabed. And because of the, the profile of, of Irish waters, we have an opportunity to deploy floating offshore wind at enormous scale off the south coast and the west coast of Ireland because we have perfect conditions for this technology, which goes into deeper water, usually about 80 metres plus. And I said earlier on that the, the, the target in the programme for government, or at least the ambition, is 30 gigawatts in the Atlantic from 2030. One gigawatt would be enough to power about a million homes, roughly. So the opportunity here is for huge deployment of floating offshore wind at scale to meet our indigenous need and to fundamentally export energy. And that could be via electrons or molecules, it could be electricity or it could be green hydrogen or derivatives thereof. So it is an enormous opportunity. And when I was reading last night about the foundation of RDS 1731, 300 years ago, look where we've come from, look where we might go. By 2030, we need to see seven gigawatts of offshore wind deployed, at least two gigawatts of floating offshore wind. So to make to that happen, to, that to maximize that <laughs> opportunity, what are the, the couple of things that need to happen then? We fundamentally need more resources in government. It boils down to that, actually, because there aren't enough people in the system to respond to the crisis. They need to focus on grid, on ports, um, on the regulatory um, framework in terms of our new marine area regulatory authority. All of those things need to be done, but fundamentally, we just, the government are spread too thin on this. We're not reacting like it's a crisis, and that's the one thing, Sean, out of all the things that need to be done, mm -hmm. that we need to focus on. Right, uh, anything else? Oh, I, I would have a long, long list, but I'll leave it at that. I'm just stilling okay, it down I'll to that. Paul, sure. Um, yeah, so I think uh, <coughs> I won't comment on policy, um, but I, I think. Well, know, how, just <laughs> I'd, g I'd give you another route into it. Uh, how helpful would it be <laughs> if if what Val is suggesting well, I think, came I, to pass? Yeah, I think the, the point that Val's making around around Shell is that we, you know, we are competing for partnerships with these sort of large international organisations mm -hmm. that are going to be. We're going to need those partnerships to get this done well and done at speed. So I think, I think we do need to think quite carefully around how attractive is Ireland as a place to invest and to partner relative to other geographies, because the likes of Shell are just, they just have a spreadsheet with projects all over the world and they, they make their decisions on that basis. But I think what's within sort of the control from an ISIF perspective is we're working very hard to create a sort of a functional investment ecosystem, if you like, around climate in Ireland so that you know, SMEs can get financing, venture companies can get financing, growth companies can get financing, and the infra projects can get the finance they need to actually, to actually grow. And so we've done that very successfully in tech, we've done it in life sciences, and so we're working hard to do it in climate now. I think the other point I'd make is, I think rooting, rooting this in a vision for where we're trying to get to is important if we want this all to end up 
joined up you know, by design rather than by, by accident, I think, would be uh, an important part of it. And then the third is, you know, often in these panels, you get asked the question, you know, are you optimistic? And I think um, <coughs> sometimes it's difficult to remain optimistic in the face of, of, of sparse data, but um, I, I, the word I would use is determined, so to approach this with a level of determination that, you know, this actually has to happen, and whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, that's a very personal thing, what you need to be is determined and to just keep moving forward and... I think moving forward with pace is, is what I'd say. So. Paul Dean, yeah. as we know, the Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Amendment Act of 2021, it makes Ireland's target of net zero emissions by uh, no later than 2050. It makes it legally binding, but unless you put the pieces in place to make something happen, you can have all the legally binding requirements yeah. you like. And, and there's nobody going to go to jail over this, is there? No, no. And look, and I suppose in many regards, you know, if, if you're like, what would, what do we need to do? Often politics reflects the people. And I suppose what I would ask all of us, and it feeds on maybe from Paul's last point about, about determination, all of us just try and have a conversation with someone today or during the week or down the GA club or having a cup of tea and just talking about this, uh, because we need a social groundswell that percolates mm -hmm. up to the political. You know, the politicals have the ambition, but it, it needs to be de-risked socially. Just chat to someone today about saying, you know, geez, we're spending a million euros every hour with this huge potential. We're very reliant on oil and gas and coal mm -hmm. in this country. Normalizing those conversations is very important, because when it comes to the next election, Sean, and there will be an election, God knows when, but it'll be soon, when politicians knock at the door, what, they, what really de-risks this journey for them is when people start asking about, what are we going to do about the energy crisis? Yeah, and I suppose more urgently, or at least more practically, the act, it also embeds the process of um, carbon budgeting into, yeah. into, into law, requiring the government to adopt a series of, I think they're economy-wide, um, five-year carbon yeah, budgets. Now, again, how effective is that from what we see so far? It's not effective yet. Emissions in Ireland are already increasing. Mm. Um, uh, but I think it takes time for those legislations to land, for it to become, I suppose, uh, for the political awareness of it to, mm. uh, to really make an effort. What, we, what it will do, Sean, I think the legislation is, is very strong in ambition, but what it does finally, it puts climate action and energy resilience into the core of every single decision that we need to make in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Before, climate action was always kind of tagged on, as kind of velcroed on as an afterthought. Now it puts it into the centre, not only of government, mm. but of county councils, of local authorities. And it gets us to start thinking about the decisions that we're making, are they compatible with where we need to go, rather than kind of reverse engineering it and saying, well, is where we're going compatible with our, with our targets? So I think it's, it's almost, it, its power really is in changing the institutional thinking. And it does need to deliver, um, because if we don't deliver, not only are we exposed to the massive threats of climate change, but there's reputational risk as well. You know, mm. Val and Paul would attest, nobody really wants to invest in, in dirty countries anymore, you know? So there's a reputational risk for us in Ireland from an investment perspective, and also from being left in the sidelines. You know, Germany, Scotland, UK, the US, they're all plowing ahead with this. Uh, we don't want to be caught flat-footed on this, particularly when we've got such potential and so much to gain. Val, you mentioned something at the early, uh, at in, the, in your earliest contribution about um, wave power, which you said, you know, it's there, but it's not right. It's not yet at the point where it can be used commercially. Um, wh what is the situation? I mean, when do you see that actually happening? That it will be uh, a viable proposition. Um, so, as a company, we are um, priming a site off the west coast um, for deployment of wave technology. Um, we're looking at um, a Swedish technology called Core Power, and it is going to be uh, deploying um, the first 
offshore array of Portugal um, in the coming weeks. So that is a leading technology that is getting to that point of going beyond testing of a single device into testing small arrays of devices. And once those devices have that time in the water and they're proven and they're tested, then you get to the point of confidence in relation to commercialization, investment, and ultimately deployment. We could see a wave energy project off the West Coast um, by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, we could see something like that. Um, and I suppose it's, it is a very important opportunity for Ireland because we have got such an incredible wave resource here. And we have invested as a country into the R&D, into facilities like the National Ocean Energy Test Tank Facility in Ringeskiddy. So there's a lot of IP being generated mm -hmm. here. So it's to be smart are about Are there successful examples of it more. being done elsewhere? Not at scale, um, but a very good test and demonstration center of excellence is EMEC on the Orkney Islands. Um, and that's where they've been testing and deploying lots of wave energy devices over many years now. And they've really distinguished themselves there as a small island, um, really punching above their weight, not just with wave energy, but with offshore and green hydrogen production as well. So it's a great case study in terms of small island mentality, entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, we are an island, as we know, but, but by no means uh, isolated. But I, I remember in a previous conversation uh, for an RDS uh, event uh, with Eddie uh, O'Connor, formerly of um, Airgrids, not uh, Yes, and absolutely mainstream. Yeah. Uh, but he was talking about the, the, the need to, to develop this um, supergrid across Europe. Now, how important is that, uh, Paul, that that actually come about? Um. That's a good question, and a, a lot of... A don't lot tell of me you're into policy now that you don't want to <laughs> no, talk no, no. about. So, I mean, Supergrid is, is a... I think it's a fantastic idea, right? It's mm. effectively, you know, superconducting uh, network that can transmit at very, very high voltage. And DC, when the wind stops blowing up this end of Europe, you the sun is shining with in relatively Europe. low losses, yeah. yeah. I, th I think there are a few competing technologies around that, so um, we think the, you know, the Supergrid is very interesting. There are other ideas around the sort of the cryogenic superconducting space that, that are interesting as well. Of course, we shouldn't ignore just basic interconnectors, which we are building, and, and that's a technology that's sort of there today. And, and you know, uh, I know AirGrid are looking closely at, at interconnection. And then, to Val's point, the export of molecules, right? So we don't have to think about just exporting electrons. We could be exporting hydrogen or um, you know, ammonia or other hydrogen carriers. And so, um, you know, we do, we see most of these technologies come through our doors at some point or other, and, and, you know, the judgment we have to make as a sort of custodian of taxpayer money is what's the right point to invest mm -hmm. um, to get a, a proper sort of risk-adjusted return. But okay, your yeah. parting thoughts, Paul Dean. <coughs> yeah, um, uh, I suppose over the last couple of years, there's a sense of frustration creeping in, and personally, when, you, when, you're, when you see, when you're looking at the potential and the opportunities every day, and then you're trying to reconcile that then with the, with the lack of action. I think there's, there's a, a, a deep frustration supposed, percolating inside me. So um, I think the opportunities far outweigh the risks. The opportunities go beyond environmental. They're economic, they're social, they're jobs, it's clean air, it's good health, it's addressing energy poverty, fuel poverty. There's so many reasons to act. Uh, and and, it's, and th th the time for excuses is gone. As Atishak said yesterday uh, in Egypt, you know, we, we can't waste one second more. And Ireland, we, we, have, we have so much to gain and we really have nothing to lose, really. Val Cummins. Well, I think we're in a climate crisis, an energy crisis, 
and a biodiversity crisis. And it's terrifying. And I have three small girls, it's terrifying. Um, so we need to act. We know what we can do. We look at other countries, we see what they're doing. Um, I'm so optimistic, a pragmatic optimist. I, I think that this is such an extraordinary opportunity for our country, this offshore peace. Um, I think we're getting there very, very slowly. It's business as usual in terms of how we're designing the system for it. We need to throw that out and just have a radical think about what disruptive um, innovation looks like in, in the context of policy making now, so that we react in a way that is about dealing in crisis mode with where we are now. It's, it's hard to add much to that. I think I agree with everything Paul and Val said. I think the, you know, for me, it's all about delivery now, and uh, we just need to get after this. Uh, there's already, you know, a, a sort of an emerging consensus that one and a half degrees is going to be very, very hard mm -hmm. slash impossible to hit. And I think rooting the conversation in reality is not necessarily a bad thing. But having said that, I agree the opportunity set is huge. So we, as a fund, have connectivity to international investors, you know, the top tier international investors throughout the world. We're bringing them to Ireland with their solutions, with their capital, with their smarts to start working on these solutions. So it's all to play for, and I think we just need to get after it. Okay, well look, on that note of defiance and challenge, thank you indeed, Paul Dean, uh, Paul, and also to, to Val, and I'm gonna hand you back now to, uh, to Gillian, sorry. Thank you all.